Welcome to the next chapter of As the Story Grows. I'm Brian Patton. Today we welcome Casey Horgan, founder of Iodine Records, to the podcast. I've gotten to work with a bunch of Iodine bands this year, and it seemed only fitting to chat with Casey about the label. Casey talks about Iodine's founding, its demise, the return, legacy, and more. Iodine has released a bunch of records this year that are on my list of favorite albums of 2022. So make sure you click on the Bandcamp link in the show notes and check out what Iodine is releasing into the world. Last week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Daniel Terry for his new podcast, DFT's Dungeon, and talk about Hum's Inlet and its impact on my life. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcast. Enjoy this week's chat with Casey from Iodine Records. Good man, it's just been a day getting ready for um <clears throat> for Furnace Fest. So oh yeah. Uh just packing records and getting all the tent equipment ready, hand numbering uh five hundred records. Oh man, jeez. Did you go last year? <clears throat> I did not. Um I really wanted to, but there was just too much going on at home and yeah. uh darling fire ended up having to cancel last minute. So, um, didn't make it. Are you going this year? No, no, I just got tattooed and we booked a Disney cruise and so it's nice. not really, not really in the, uh, in the works. <laughs> well, it sounds like a good time either way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're up the road, man. So we got to get together one of these days soon. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you said you're in you're in Maryland side? Yeah, yeah, in Rockville, yeah. Okay. Yeah, nice and close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny when like anytime anybody lives in the area, you're like, oh, we're close, even though close could be like an hour apart. Because I don't know. I grew I grew up in Montgomery County and then I lived in Virginia when I first got married. And then we moved to Philly. And then moving back to Montgomery County's been wild to be back. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm awesome. from nowhere around here. It was just a fluke that I ended up here. Yeah, well, it brought you down here. <laughs> At work, my yeah. day job, yeah. Fun. So, <clears throat> I don't know do? if it's fun. It's just, uh, what's that? What do you uh, do? It's a boring government, boring government job. You, but you <laughs> it allows me the flexibility of being able to do stuff like this. So Yeah, yeah. Well, before we talk about like what brought the label back and what you're doing now, let's talk about uh, where you're from. You grew up in uh, Massachusetts, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Boston. Awesome, awesome. What was what was that like? Um, I feel very lucky to have grown up there. You know, the years that I started getting into punk music was right around that time that so many amazing bands you know were coming onto the scene you know especially in boston and um there was no shortage of venues there was no shortage of shows to go to and you know it's funny when you look back because you know the scene that you grow up in that's sometimes all you know um mm -hmm. but look you know being able to reflect on that now I mean, I, I 
I felt so fortunate to be exposed to, you know, just so many cool um, opportunities and, you know, not only in the punk world, but in the hardcore world and the metal world and, you know, and seeing some of the early emo bands come through Boston and, you know, it was just such a incredible time in music. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. What was your, your gateway into music and into that scene? Um, I mean, I think my story is pretty typical, you know, um, mid nineties got into bands like Nirvana and stuff like that. And, um, I had a few friends and in high school that were into metal and we started going to shows and somehow the first like punk show I ever went to was Murphy's law at the rat in Boston and never really like punk music was not really on my radar other than, you know, like the Ramones and the misfits and stuff like that. Um, but after going to my first show, I, I got hooked. And I think like a week later I saw a veil for the first time in Boston nice. and, um, you know, just kind of like thrust into the, the punk scene there and, you know, being, you know, your typical kind of, um, outcast in high school you know i like i found my people pretty quickly and uh -huh. just like you know created a whole community around it and i knew pretty early on that it was going to be my life um i thought i wanted to be in a band and you know do that whole thing and i started a band and you know we we played the boston circuit for a number of years and you know we did decent for a local band but we were not very good um yeah. <laughs> I, I especially did not have um much talent <laughs> to to give to the world i i had to sing because i couldn't play any instruments <laughs> and um by seeing it was you know pretty uh horrible screaming <laughs> and uh you know i gave it a shot for a number of years and um you know we took our demo and actually that's how the label started was i shopped the demo to you know 15 20 labels and you know, got rejected across the board and uh, I just got fed up and was like, well, fuck it. If no one wants to put my band's record out, I'm going to start my own label. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the idea of doing a compilation as a way to, you know, raise money to, you know, kind of, you know, start something bigger. Um, you know, the, the first record we released was a comp that had, you know, a, number of bands that ended up getting quite big you know bands mm -hmm. like converge and cave in and um yeah a bunch of local boston bands and some national bands and <clears throat> that kind of like put us on the map right away the band i was in ended up breaking up so i never actually put that record out <laughs> um but it kind of started this whole thing and then the the label turned into you know my contribution to the community it yeah. was my way of staying involved in and you know using just my interest in music to to put more music out into the world yeah yeah what was the name of that band uh agent 84 agent 84 yeah you'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to find much out there but there are they on the comp or is it one of these playlists on your uh it's not on anything um i i've toyed with the idea of releasing those tracks at some point in time but Oh, maybe that's on the to, Wikipedia. Uh, that's that's one of the uh, like might not released yep. on the label. Maybe that's what I saw on when I was researching. Yep, that, that name about stuck right. out to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was your connection into the scene because you had tried to make it as a band and like 
you had like built up some momentum, you know, even just locally, like you had the connections to be able to put out the comp where you knew people. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where it started. Um, but I guess what I was more known for more than the band was I started a distro. So in, in 96, um, you know, <clears throat> as I was like really, you know, kind of at the height of my interest in, in the punk scene, um, you know, the records I wanted to get, you couldn't find in the stores, you know, mm -hmm. the, the real good underground stuff. And so you'd always wait for these bands to come on tour or you'd wait for like a distro to come through town, or you would literally do, you know, cash in an envelope mail order, um, you know, to some of these distros that were advertising in zines. So I started a distro and the distro was iodine records and, um, everybody came to me to get records and i you know had built up a relationship with a lot of these you know early emo and punk and hardcore labels and was wholesaling or getting a lot of stuff on consignment as well and so you know i was driving around the city with crates of records going to every show you know <laughs> hawking setting whatever up the I could tables yeah setting <laughs> up the tables yeah and um it was that's really kind of where things started and through that i got to know a lot of bands and mm -hmm. so like when i reached out to bands like converge or whoever um they were excited to do it and you know if you go back to the 90s comps were king that's how you found out about new bands and yeah. uh it's funny telling kids about comps these days because yeah. they seem like you know oh it's like a playlist or whatever but um you know the radio didn't play the stuff we wanted to hear so yeah. you know you'd go to the store and you'd pick up those comps and that's how you would discover new music. So I think that iodine kind of made it stake because of that first comp we did. And it, it became, you know, I think one of the most well-known or most popular, you know, punk hardcore emo comps that came out, you know, in the, in the late nineties. Um, and, you know, from there, it actually became pretty easy to kind of attract bands because we, we were known for that. Yeah. Yeah. Those comps are always great because like, yeah they'd cost like two three bucks on cd and they'd have yeah. like 20 bands and like yeah. all right i know half the bands here so i'm gonna like their tracks and the other half i'm gonna discover whoever they might be When you started the label, I mean, you wanted to do it to do your record. I mean, how how quickly were you out after the comp? Were you like connecting with bands to put things out? Like, what was your process in choosing who to work with? It it was pretty quick after the comp. I mean, even before the comp came out, I was out there scouting bands, trying to find bands to work with, and being a young label you know, we didn't have much clout to begin with, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, people knew us from the comp or knew me from the comp, but didn't have a business partner quite yet. But, um, so I kind of went out and tried to find some young bands that were no one had heard of. They were just getting their start and kind of entered into a partnership deal that was, Hey, you know, the label's just starting out. I'll work my butt off if you work your butt off and hopefully it works out. The first band I ever signed was Orange Island, who um, 
just happened to be, you know, neighbors. They lived down the street. And a good friend of mine was roommates with the drummer from Orange Island. And, you know, came over one day with a demo and said, hey, these guys are good. They, you know, they're hard workers. They want to get out there and do all the things. And uh, I met with them and, you know, we hit it off really early on. And, you know, the first actual band release was their first EP. And, um, you know, from there it was, you know, we, again, sought out you know, some of these younger bands that didn't really have any sort of real following yet. And, you know, our goal was to kind of build them up and, you know, we got lucky, um, you know, the first few bands we picked up ended up getting signed to bigger labels later and, you know, got out on big tours and, you know, things just started to grow from there. Um, and then it was later that, you know, it became easier and easier to find bands because now bands were coming to us versus yeah. us trying to, you know, find bands to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Were you just doing CDs when you started the label? Or were you doing cassettes, vinyl? Like, um, We mainly did CDs. We did some vinyl, um, you know, but again, in the early 2000s, especially the vinyl was just a, like a gigantic waste of money. Right. Um, you know, we did the biggest record we ever put out was that brand new record. And yeah. that came out on vinyl. And it's funny to see those pop up on eBay now for like $7,000 because yeah. at the time we couldn't even get them off the shelves. I mean, they sat there for years collecting dust. I mean, you know, we'd be on tour and, you know, people would ask if it was a wall calendar because yeah, right. <laughs> no one had record players. It wasn't a cool thing to collect. Um, and, you know, so we, we toyed with vinyl for a while, but it just, you know, at, at, with us trying to grow the label, mm -hmm. like CDs were what was in. And so, you know, the vast majority of our releases were only on CD. Yeah. Yeah. That was like the best time to be a vinyl collector because every release you could pick up for like 12 bucks and it was sometimes cheaper than CDs. And yeah, yeah exactly. Now, now there's stuff on my shelf that, yeah, if I put it on eBay, it hundreds of dollars that I paid yeah. 12 bucks for. I'm like, yeah, it's exactly. not in good shape anymore. It's 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but if somebody wants to pay me hundreds of dollars, who knows, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what led to you uh, shutting the label down there? So, yeah, I think my story is pretty typical of the era. And, you know, with the way the industry was moving, you know, again, you know, we're talking about a time when the internet was starting to blow up mp3s and downloading and um crowd sharing sites were what was in mm -hmm. and it was it was an interesting time for us because our bands were getting bigger than they'd ever have been you know we'd go to shows and they'd be sold out you know people door to door but we were selling fewer and fewer and fewer records and <clears throat> it just made it really hard to you know, keep things going and, you know, pay for production and pay for, you know, bands to go into the studio. And, you know, we were young and I think we made some stupid decisions. I, I had a business partner like towards the end and, you know, we wanted to be a huge label. I, I mean, I would say huge. We wanted to be a, like a, a big player, you know, we yeah. wanted to be right out there with Jade Tree and Equal Vision and Victory and, and all those other labels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we thought, okay, well, if we're going to be on par with those guys, we need to have an office. We need to have, um, you know, a team working for us and people doing PR and people doing, 
um, you know, filling mail orders and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we didn't have a huge team, but you know, at the height, we probably had 10 people working for the label and, you know, we had an office in Boston and, um, you know, the, the amount of revenue we were bringing in was like barely paying the bills. And so, you know, at one point it just started to like downsize and then downsize again and then downsize again. And it was an interesting time because when iodine went under, it was 2004. And that same period within a few years on either end, you had labels like ferret, you know, who did like every time I die and all these, you know, big mm-hmm. metalcore bands and eyeball who did my chemical romance. And, you know, again, a ton of huge yeah. bands for that time. Um, and all these labels, like one by one were just tanking yeah. and all of them had a similar story. It was just like, you know, people weren't buying as many CDs as they used to. And, you know, the majors had like merch deals and stuff like that. And um, when you hear stories about labels, they're able to get through that early 2000s without, you know, much scratches on them. It was the merch that mm-hmm. that saved them through those years until the vinyl resurgence came back, you know, in the you know 2010 to 2012 or whenever it was. And um, but iodine was not immune to it. And it was, um, you know, we were pressing five to 10,000 CDs per release and, you know, pallets of them were just sitting there collecting dust. And, you know, at some point the bill collectors came around and we just couldn't keep things moving. And at some point I just decided I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. My stress, my mental health. And, you know, I, there's no one could see a way out of the hole that we had dug, you know, unless one of our bands blew up, and it just wasn't happening. I mean, all of our bands were doing well, but none of no one was getting to the point that like we're selling, you know, hundred thousand copies of a record. Yeah. If that means, you know, so um it just hit that breaking point of I couldn't sit there and wait it out anymore. And um yeah, I just decided to pull the plug one day and that was that. Yeah. Early I'm trying to remember like early two thousands, like at some point in there, like even the shows, like the nature of like touring bands started to change where like everything moved into clubs and it was all the scene grew into a bigger and it was no longer like vfw halls and church basements and like house shows anymore and it was like not showing up there wasn't the distro guy with cds anymore yeah yeah and to be honest i i hated it i hated having to end the label and it never sat right with me it's some i didn't want to do it and, you know, I went through a number of years of struggle, mm-hmm. um, you know, letting people down and letting the bands down and, you know, feeling like I ended it in a way that, um, you know, it was just very sudden and, um, you know, it was part of my identity. It was part of mm-hmm. who I was. And obviously it remained part of who I was because here I am 17 years later, um, <laughs> you know, having this need to do it again. Yeah. Um, And, you know, a huge part of that was like going back to some of those bands that I let down and, you know, like a a good story is um, Smoke or Fire. You know, they were one of the last bands we signed and that record workers union came out like the week that the label shut down. Oh man. And, you know, they, again it's an amazing record they poured themselves into it and they're excited to be on a label i think they were actually out on tour with a veil or against me at that time you know and they 
open their email and they see, oh, your label's, you know, done as of today. And, you know, they were really hurt by that. And, you know, they had to finish this tour without any label support. Their record was out, but it wasn't really being distributed or promoted. And, you know, obviously they went on to some big success. They got signed by Fat Records and it did some great things. But um, for me, when I brought the label back, one thing that was really important to me was to circle back to some of these bands like Smoke or Fire and just say, hey, um, I'd really like the opportunity to do this again and do it right. And, mm. you know, obviously I can't turn back the clock 20 years, but, um, you know, let's let's do something fun together and let's let's just kind of end that story, you know, and end it on a positive note. And that's actually been probably the most amazing um you know experience for me with the label coming back is um being able to you know rekindle these relationships with these artists and feel like we're you know kind of closing that chapter yeah. um you know before moving forward Tender wild love i've been looking for you so long oh, oh. running Too strong. Oh, oh, I know we're both scared. But if you take a chance, I swear. Yeah. Did you think you were done with music after the label shut down? Oh, I didn't think I was done with music. I oh, knew no. I was done with music. <laughs> yeah. I um, I left the scene. I I didn't listen to music for years. Oh man. And I I needed a long time to kind of recover from it. And and you know, I did a lot of soul searching for myself. I I the first thing i did actually after the label ended is i went into the woods and i hiked the appalachian trail from georgia to maine um over six months you know walked over two thousand wow. miles yeah and then from there i moved to nepal and uh, <laughs> I, I lived in a buddhist monastery um in the himalaya and i taught english in a small village um and from there i moved back to the united states and got a job as a park ranger and lived out in the mountains and you know the the sierra nevada and you know with no phone no internet just literally <laughs> out in the wilderness and um you know i spent the last 17 years like kind of just focusing on myself and it's interesting because even though i was not involved with the scene i wasn't involved with music um i didn't even listen to much music <laughs> i i always had this like nagging feeling in the back of my head that i had unfinished business and that i had you know something more to contribute to you know kind of what saved me as a, as a kid and yeah. um you know a few years back uh, a few bands had come to me asking to reissue some of their releases and that was kind of the catalyst for me to say you know what like maybe this is the opportunity i need to start it back up again and just see where it goes and it's funny how you know things work out because at first 
that's all I wanted to do was a few reissues to just kind of <laughs> close the book and say, mm-hmm. all right, I did it. I, I'm, I'm done. I, I filled that need and things just started to snowball. And I was yeah. really like humbled by like how excited people were to see the label come back mm-hmm. and the excitement and the enthusiasm and the support. And, you know, I, at the same time, I had all these artists like, you know, coming to me saying, will you put out my next record? Or, you know, will you, you know, <laughs> help me with producing this, this album or yada, yada, yada. And, um, you know, here I am a year later and I've got like 20 artists under my belt, you yeah. know, with like 2023 is already booked up. I've got 13 oh, releases planned for 2023. Oh, wow. I, nice. <laughs> we haven't even finished out 2022 yet. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, things got out of hand really fast, but <laughs> I, I'm really happy with where things are right now. Yeah. That's awesome. Did it help? I mean, help might be a, a tough word, but like that COVID happened and things locked down and it's like this time to like, I don't know, people took like this mental or personal reset and be like, okay, what do I really want to do with my time? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's funny because like my, you know, like my day job and stuff wasn't really affected by COVID, you know, to the same extent that other people's were. But um, I think the timing worked out for the label because we started with a few reissues and I think that people were really hungry for music during that time. And I think, it, you know, the, the first record we did back was the, there were wires, some reissue. I don't know that that record would do as well if it came out now. Um, yeah. you know, it came out when nothing was coming out. And so there was a lot of excitement behind it and a lot of support behind it. And, you know, I think that really was the driving force for me to kind of continue and and do more. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I know that bands like the Darling Fire or Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses, and there's a lot of people that weren't affiliated with the label yet, or Jonah from One Line Drawing, that were writing these beautiful, amazing records during the pandemic. And I was lucky enough that they wanted to bring those records to me when you know when they found me or when they reconnected with me or whatever the story might be there and you know i i am for sure the lucky recipient of you know bringing the label back at such a good time that people were able to create this amazing art and that they trust me enough to you know be the the entity that that puts it out into the world and promotes it yeah yeah and it probably helps that like iodine comes back and it's like name recognition and then it's like iodine's releasing jerome's dream and people are like oh shit i like i love everything about that or uh audio karate or like these classic bands or like bands from artists people recognize and it's like yeah i want to listen to the new project that has members of strong arm and rocking horse winner of course like yeah and you know some of that was by design i i'm lucky that i have and have kept a lot of good friends in the industry over the years. And, um, that, you know, again, those people like audio karate or a drum stream that, you know, they, again, they trust me and they trust the the brand of the label. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to take people that I have these relationships with. And the one thing about iodine that I always thought was great. And I think, I think people enjoy is that, we're not a genre label. Mm-hmm. Our stuff is all over the map. And for me, it's just all about, you know, I like to, 
I like good music and I want to put out good music from, you know, everything under the punk rock umbrella. And, and I want to release it in a way that's meaningful and packaged in a way that, that makes it feel special. And so, you know, at first it was going to be all reissues. And I, I think that it's turned into something that's really cool, which, you know, you alluded to is, you know, the bands, the, you know, the classic bands and the the bands that have a lot of history are now, you know, part of the the growing family of iodine. But now when we take on new bands like the Darling Fire or Hey Thanks, you know, they, they now become affiliated or associated with like, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of old guard. And, you know, I hope that it, it brings some attention to some of the newer music that we're putting out. How did you get connected with Stretch Armstrong? Uh, it's actually through the Darling Fire. Okay. And um, well, I, I, let me back up a second. <laughs> I I have a lot of people who are often like sending me messages saying, hey, you should reissue this record. You should reissue <laughs> that record. And I mean, I get a lot of those. <laughs> so um, I... I had known Stretch Armstrong. Um, so back in the nineties, I used to be the tour manager for Converge for uh, a number of years. And so for three or four years, you know, we were on the road, you know, nine months out of the year. And, uh, I remember Stretch Armstrong played a good number of shows with Converge and I, I didn't know them super well, but, you know, just acquaintances just mm-hmm. from being on the road. And, um, never really kept in touch with them, but the the relationship was there. And, you know, fast forward to now, uh, a few people had reached out to me saying, Hey, you should put out the stretch Armstrong records. They've been out of print for 23 years or or whatever the the case was. And, um, the first time I heard it, I just kind of like brushed it off. I was like, eh, you know, no, I don't know. Um, and then Steve Kleiseth from the Darling Fire, um, he and I were talking and he had brought it up and said, Hey, you should really think about working with stretch. Uh, they're really good friends of mine. And so he reached out to Scott Dempsey from stretch Armstrong and said, Hey, you should get in touch with Casey. You know, he's bringing the label back and I think it'd be a you know great relationship to, to reissue all your old stuff. And it was funny because Scott that same day, like two other people had just mentioned to him. Hey, you should work with iodine. They're doing really <laughs> cool stuff. And, um, you know, he and I, again, we didn't know each other that well, but we ended up connecting and it was, it was funny. We hit it off like right off the bat. And, um, you know, we started talking, it seemed like a good fit. And then from there, we just started doing all the things that need to be done. And here we are. So it, you know, again, the cool thing about this, this world, at least in the, you know, the music business is, for me, it's always been about community mm-hmm. and, you know, working with good people that have, you know, good intentions with what they want to do with their music and stretch fit that bill across the board. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have done a bunch of like partner releases with uh, Frank Club Records. How'd that relationship come about? Um, I 
don't remember how it started, but I I think that it's I had connected to them through Be Well. I think they did the Be Well demo. Yeah. And we started chatting and I don't remember who asked who, but the the 20 year anniversary for Orange Island's Shape of Calling had come up and it wasn't big enough that I wanted to, um, you know, take on the risk of putting it on vinyl. And they had offered to do a cassette release of it, um, you know, and I had remastered it for digital. And, and again, I don't remember the whole chain of events, but they, sure. they were excited about doing it. And so they, they put out the cassette of that for the 20th anniversary. And I think from there, we just started talking all the time and I cassettes are cool, but from a business perspective, for me, I work through a distributor death wish. Mm-hmm. So like the profit margins, not to make it about money, but like for a cassette, I end up losing money. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um and so we kind of built a you know a good partnership with Friend Club where if there's a release they're interested in on cassette, I've told them, hey, you can have any iodine release you want if you want to put nice. it on a cassette. And um, you know, we worked out a, a deal that works for both of us and it works for the bands. And um, yeah, they've been a they've been a cool partner and it's always fun to be able to kind of cross promote stuff, you know, through each other. Yeah. Yeah. With returning in a time where you know music videos are more popular than ever with youtube and like spotify has completely changed the way music is released and distributed has there been this learning curve with like coming back and trying to run the label and figure out best ways to promote your artist oh yeah uh in a big way i mean you know when i closed up shop the way i promoted releases was i would take out uh a half page ad in punk planet a half page ad in maximum rock and roll. And I would wash my hands and call it a day. (laughs) And uh, I would just sit back and wait for the sales to come in. So (laughs) it was, it was a big learning curve. And I think with the first few releases, I definitely didn't navigate the digital side of it, you know, the way that you need to now, you Mm -hmm. know, like I wasn't dropping singles and I wasn't, I just kind of put it out when it came out and that was that. And, um, you know, over the last two years, uh, it's been a crash course and just learning, you know, marketing in the digital age and, and, you know, maximizing your use of social media and Spotify playlisting and and all the things. It's a hell of a lot more work than it used to be. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot harder. The thing that's really frustrating is there's so much content out there now it's really hard to make your stuff visible. And I, I honestly feel that people's attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, before you know it, like you put out a new record and it's like, people are already starting to think about, you know, the next thing or, you right. know, it's so, you know, we are trying to find ways of keeping things, uh, you know, visible and and keeping people's attention on what we're doing and i have no idea if we're succeeding at that or not but um you know we're trying and we're you know we we're always open to suggestions from our artists and other people in the community of like what what does work and what doesn't work and 
um you know the old school mentality in me i still like print ads i still I still print postcards and stuff them in mail orders and stuff like that and i don't think that'll ever change like i i still like physical media and that's mm-hmm. you know a huge part of what i want this label to be so um you know going to things like furnace fest or, or whatever you know though that sort of stuff where i can have that kind of direct engagement um will always be important to me yeah yeah, I have a whole bag of like band stickers from like 20 years in my desk. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know what I'm ever going to do with these, but I'm not getting rid of them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, it's great. Uh, well, yeah, you have a full slate for 2023 already. So uh, label labels going to keep going, keep pushing on. That's awesome. Uh, before I let you go here, what's been like keeping you going? What are you what music, TV shows, books? What are you uh, ingesting? That's like bringing you joy lately. <laughs> I feel like my life right now is consumed by the label, um, which is like not the answer you're looking for. But um, <laughs> since bringing it back, I work late night trying to stay on top of everything. And, um, you know, I, I've i been listening to a lot more like shoegaze stuff lately. So like I've been really into like nothing and Holy Fawn. Um, that new Slow Crush record's really good. Um, but it, it's funny, like when you're in the in the heat of it i listen to a lot less music than you would think because <laughs> i stay so busy with things mm-hmm. but i you know and i'm and i'm not saying this to sound cheesy but the label brings me so much joy and so much happiness yeah. that like this this is what i've always wanted to be doing and it's still a hobby to me um it's not my full-time job and i hope maybe someday it could be but for right now it's really just about um you know, putting putting stuff into the world and kind of creating a legacy. listening to as the story grows our intro music was written and composed by jeremy hunt the as the story grows theme is by bob nana if you like what you hear subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a rating and review if you'd like to support the show financially you can join us at patreon.com slash as the story grows be a part of our community and join the ongoing conversation over on discord if you enjoy this episode share it on social media with your friends much appreciated and thanks for listening. I never felt so young and alive as when I'm diving into a tomb. And now I'm learning as I listen along and the wheels are turning and I started a song. What good word and I'm gone. Oh, as the story. Oh, wow.
sing 